Welcome to another episode of How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, here today with Benjamin Kant. How are we doing, Ben? Doing well, Nate. Looking forward to jumping into Acts chapter 9. Right, which we actually promised listeners last week, and we're actually following through that we're just going to continue on to the next part of Acts. So where we left off, uh, Philip had preached the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch and then was caught up in the spirit, uh, carried away, and then next thing we know, Acts 9, Saul is still breathing threats and murder. Mm. Sounds intense. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it's intensified from just dragging people off to prison to now threats and murder. Mm -hmm. So let's read Acts 9, and we'll pause if we need to and and draw some some points out. But the reason why we're doing this is because this is one of the most, you really can say, pivotal moments. And by that we mean... Uh, it's a pivot, right? Some, a shift has happened. A pivot has happened in the history of Christianity, <laughs> like mm-hmm. in the the church. Like this is a huge moment that happens here when arguably the greatest missionary that ever lived comes to Jesus. Yeah. And so one of the ways that we're going to read this is to to talk about how um, people have argued that a lot of Paul's theology that we find mostly in Paul's letters uh, in the rest of the New Testament, a lot of Paul's theology can be found in condensed seminal kind of seed form here in Acts 9. And so we're going to pause uh, moment by moment and kind of look at those things. Um, Nate, feel free to interrupt me as I read through Acts 9. Okay. So Acts 9, 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, I love that that's a way the church used to be known, belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. That's important. A light from heaven shone around him. We'll come back to it, though. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, pause for a moment. This voice from heaven, who we, if you know Acts 9, <laughs> we, we find out is Jesus, mm-hmm. um, says, why are you persecuting me? Now, the Lord Jesus is in a resurrected physical body, like you and I have, a human body, but he's ascended into heaven. and he, So he's not on earth anymore in that sense. And yet, he asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? So that should, that should be a question mark. You should maybe even underline the word me there. That's a big deal. But we'll keep going. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So again, Mm. Jesus is insistent that as Paul, Saul, goes out and and persecutes the church, dragging them out of their houses, is breathing threats and murder, that somehow when he's doing this to average Joe and average Jane Christian, he's doing it to Jesus himself. That's a big deal. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, we'll keep reading about Ananias in a moment here, but something that's worth talking about is Paul is one of the great theologians of this idea called the body of Christ. 
right? We, we hear this, it, it comes up in, in Ephesians, in Corinthians, and like Paul has a really hard time not talking about the body of Christ, how Jesus is the head of the body, the church is the, the body, um, and so we are all members one of another. Um, we have this idea of union with Christ. Mm. Um, it's one of Paul's favorite metaphors to talk about salvation and, and the church and Jesus and how these things all kind of work together. I, I, I would argue he may have come to that conclusion from this experience right here. Jesus himself said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul must have scratched his head if he wasn't blind and fallen on the ground, must have scratched his head and wondered, I've not done anything to you, Jesus. It's these people that belong to the way, these men and women that I'm mm-hmm. persecuting. Yeah. And Jesus finds such a sense of solidarity with his people on earth that he can say when somebody that's a believer in Jesus, somebody who's united to Christ by faith is being persecuted, Jesus himself is being persecuted. That had an impact on the future of of Paul's theology, his trajectory of understanding the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And it happened here in Acts 9. Do you have any thoughts about that, Nate? Well, it makes me think of in the Gospels when Jesus tells his disciples um, I'm, I can't remember the exact passage, but he's talking about feeding the hungry and helping the poor. And if you do something for them, you've done it for me. Mm-hmm. So there's like a seed form in mm-hmm. Jesus's teaching, but this concept of a body that Paul really unpacks is not there in so many words. Mm-hmm. And so it, it makes sense that this is going to have an effect on him, that persecuting a believer is tantamount to persecuting Jesus. That's right. Well, and, and we can continue on and talk about this concept of blindness and light and sight um, is really important. So we're going to continue on in the story, and we'll come back to that as another theological concept. So verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Which is like the classic response if you have a verbal call from God Almighty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just say, Here I am. (laughs) And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So Saul has no idea what to do with himself. He does what a good Jew would do in this situation, which is to pray. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you can imagine how disruptive this is. He knows the name Jesus. He knows he was crucified. He knows his followers are wreaking havoc. He wants to kill them because he's a zealous Pharisee. And so he just starts praying. He's blind as a bat, though. (laughs) And so verse, verse 12, it says, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. What if you let me kill him instead? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, doesn't say that, but G- you can Jesus, imagine. Jesus, are you sure? That's, exactly. And then I was like, Do you, are we talking about the same Saul here? <laughs> you know, the one from Tarsus? Yeah. Uh, and Jesus is merciful. And he says this, um, uh, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Wow. Amazing that he addresses him. Brother Saul, Mm -hmm. this murderer of Christians, this persecutor of Christians. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I just said, this, I mean, this is one of the most dramatic moments, I'm going to amp it up more, in human history. Like, people know, we use the phrase, oh, so-and-so had a Damascus Road experience, right? Right. Like this It's It's an archetype now. It's iconic. That's right. It is an archetype. And so a few points, and I I want you, Nate, to do some research while I'm talking, because I don't actually know where this is, on the point where Jesus says um, how he's going to use him as an instrument to carry his name and how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. I think it's Acts 13, where that comes back up, where where Paul's a light to the Gentiles, um, a light to the nations, those kind of things. So, um, but one of the things I want to focus on here is um, two things. One is Saul is the great, uh, you know, champion of the church as, as fulfilling the one another commands of scripture, right? That we are an interdependent community, that we are in utter desperate need for one another. Like Jesus could have done what Ananias did without using Ananias, but he chose to use Ananias so that there was a mutual dependence between Ananias trusting the Lord Jesus, Saul receiving his sight back from being having his hands laid on him, something that Saul would do later to Timothy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's something powerful about this weaving together of the body of Jesus, of the people of Jesus that's necessary here. Another one, and I, and I said I'd come back to this, is this language of blindness and light and sight and, and whatnot. If you look in, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, about his ministry. He's talking about how he's received this ministry from God and and how you have to, uh, if you're preaching the gospel, you have to deal with unbelievers. And and why is it that unbelievers maybe don't receive the gospel, don't see Jesus as brilliant and beautiful like we do? And he says in in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, Satan that is, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is autobiographical as much as it is theological right here. Paul himself experienced what it was like to have the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine into his heart. And so this idea of uh, non-believers being blinded and not being able to see, but then giving sight by the Holy Spirit uh, so that they can, the, the kind of scales fall off their eyes, are able to see Jesus in his beauty and brilliance. And, and that's a picture of conversion that Saul offers us mm-hmm. because that was his story of conversion. And so we're just giving a few examples of how the, the themes from Acts 9 run throughout Paul's theology in the rest of the New Testament. Yeah. Well, I, was, I tried to do a little research while you were talking, but I just kind of let my mind go where it, it was going to go anyways. Um, and seeing, we can see the themes in this chapter trace forward into Paul's letter, but we mm-hmm. can also see some of the... Uh, some of the structures of this story trace backwards into the Old Testament. Mm. Um, and when we think about, I was just thinking about taking my name to the Gentiles and the name, and I uh, just thought about how that's such a huge theme in Exodus, mm-hmm. where uh, Moses has his burning bush experience, which another type of archetypal experience. And it's where he's 
commissioned and called and given the name of Yahweh to take to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the rest of Exodus is proving that Yahweh's name will be made great, not mm. Pharaoh's name. And the book ends with us knowing very clearly who Yahweh is. And now historically, we don't even know who that Pharaoh was because mm. he did, his name is erased from the account. Mm-hmm. So it made me think in some sense, there's parallels between... Um, because there's parallels between Paul and Moses in the sense of Paul is kind of the Moses of the New Testament in mm-hmm. some sense, and that he writes the foundational books. Besides the Gospels, he's writing the rest of the foundational books, explaining mm. the significance of the Gospel, all stemming back to this experience. Mm. Um, he's helping to lead his. He's helping to lead God's chosen people out of slavery to the law into freedom in Christ, mm-hmm. much as Moses literally led Israel out of slavery in Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land. Mm. Yes, and he's uh, he's being commissioned, and there, there's only so many commissioning stories in the in the Bible, and so I think there's parallels between all of them. Isaiah six, things like that. Right, right. What I like about what you just did, Nate, is you modeled for us what it's like to read the Bible backwards and forwards, mm. um, and so. I've been reading it forwards this whole time, pointing to Paul's future letters that he would write. You read it backwards and said, hey, actually, Paul is fitting into uh, an archetype, of, if you will, of calling stories and, and things like that in the Old Testament that, that we can draw on and see them at work here. Yeah. And one of the things, just to maybe even close this out here, Acts 9.16, Jesus tells Ananias this, for I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And when we... You know, fast forward to Second Corinthians 12, um, this great chapter about how Christ's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness, how his grace is sufficient for him. One of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. At the end of, of uh, that whole section in chapter, or I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 12:10, it says this, for the sake of Christ. Remember, for the sake of my name. Now, Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So in Second Corinthians, we've got a more mature Paul than we do in Acts 9, for sure. Mm-hmm. And he has suffered for the sake of Jesus's name. And he says, I'm content with it. I'm actually okay with it because this was my calling and it's for the sake of Christ and I'm willing to do it for the sake of Christ's name. So just this beautiful story that gets worked out throughout the whole New Testament to where we get to 2 Corinthians. He's saying, hey, I've learned this secret. I've learned the secret in abundance and need. That's Philippians. Uh, I've learned what it's like to be content with the hardships or with the plenty that I face. And what is it? It's it's seeing that Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness and that I can actually do these things for the sake of Christ, which was his call according to Acts 9, 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's amazing how there's so many seeds here in this chapter that really set the course for the rest of his letters. And so listeners will need to make note of these and even make note of some of the ones in the next section uh, that we don't get to and how things intensify and Paul meets the disciples and they are not sure about him for good reason. Um, and so there's a lot there that we didn't quite get to, but as listeners are reading along, they'll be able to as well. But it's a pleasure talking with you, Ben. I'll look forward to next time. As always. Thanks, Nate.